finishing well. Finishing well. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 5. And you want to be able to flip back a little bit. I'm going to just do a real small review. And you want to look at those verses when I hit this review. Just to remind yourself and just lock in the pattern of what's happening here in, uh, in this letter. And here we want to talk about today, we want to talk about finishing well. Um, uh, the way we start is one thing, the way we finish is a whole nother thing. Um, what do you think about when you think about finishing well? What's the image that comes to mind? Who do you think of? Who, uh, who's a friend of yours that is finishing well? Where have you learned about finishing well in your own life? Um, I think about students that stay the course and uh, they finish their degree. They, they stay the course and they, and they finish well. They get to walk across that, that podium and uh, get their diploma or degree and they have an example of finishing well. A child who stays engaged with the family. This one we don't really give awards out for diplomas, but I know what it feels like. You all know what it feels like if you have adult children. A child who stays engaged right to the end, who is willing to be faithful and to be engaged with the family, loving their mom and dad, mom and dad loving them right to the end. It's finishing well. Then they move on to whatever it is that God has for them next, and we bless them, right? We bless them as they go. An athlete who trains even when, when their team isn't around, who works hard on their endurance and works hard on their skills, even when nobody's looking. They know what it is to finish well. They know what it takes to get to the end, and so they invest heavily in the process of training. As we turn the corner and consider our own hearts before God and what it is to finish well, here's the imagery that I get. I see an older man or an older woman who hasn't stopped learning. Men and women and students who don't stop trying and struggling and fighting to apply God's word in the context that they live, work, and play. A woman who, whose love is growing deeper and richer all of her days, no matter what the circumstances are that she faces, she fights. She fights to finish well. Most of what she does, no one sees. But she knows God sees the heart, right? And she wants to finish well. Men. A man who is more than just, just a nice guy, but men who deeply love Jesus and their wives and their children and the people around them. And they want to do that for years and years and years. So the imagery for me when I think of finishing well is of an older person who has plodded through the years and years of walking with Jesus. And they're a whole lot closer to finishing well than I am. And I like those pictures. And you ought to. 
And you have to hold them in your heart and consider them in your heart and, and look at people who have gone before us and, and, and say to myself, well, I, I want that for my life. I want that for, at, at one year of marriage, I want to look at 63 of Don and Anita Schoenwald and, and, and I, want, I want to honor that. I want that in my life. The writer of Hebrews here has us on a trajectory of growing and finishing well. This is what he's thinking. He's not just, he's not just writing a letter so, so that everybody gets it right, so that he can pass out the exam at the end of the day and everybody can get the right answers. His intention is that their living would exemplify those qualities that he's teaching, that they would love Jesus, who is better, and that they would finish well. He doesn't want any of them lost in the fray. So he's teaching them well. And that's what we get. We get a teaching about finishing well. Everything he's doing and everything, I I, I submit myself and I I humble myself before him. This writer and the the author of Hebrews, who, who God has used to bring us this message, I want you to finish well. I want you to finish well. I want to finish well. We have to have the end in view. It's not just today. It's not just what we're experiencing in the moment. We want to have the end in view. The context here in this, in this text is, 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 is this writer saying, there's some hard things that I need to teach you, and I've been teaching you some hard things already, but I've, I've stumbled on something that's really, really complicated. Jesus is is better, and he's the final revelation. He, he's the better word. Listen to him. He's already taught us. Jesus is better than angels, right? We don't worship angels. They reveal the Son of, Son of God, but it's the Son of God who actually made them. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was this faithful servant in the house of God, but who made the house? God made the house. Jesus provides a better rest. And all the pictures of rest that God gave to Israel and to us, all the temporal pictures of rest, even a good meal with friends, it points to a better rest. Amen? And here, late in chapter 4, the writer has now introduced Jesus as the great high priest. Alex taught us a few weeks ago in in chapter 4 and verse 14. Lay your eyes on it if you could. He says that that Jesus is a heavenly high priest who didn't just pass through the veil of an earthly tabernacle. No, he's a heavenly high priest who passed through the heavens and represented you and me before a heavenly father. He's an eternal high priest, a heavenly high priest. In verse chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, he's a sympathetic high priest. He knows humanity firsthand. He's able to sympathize. He's able to empathize with every human need and every human weakness. Because of his high priestly work, we are no longer outsiders who stand on the outskirts, the outskirts of the tabernacle, but we're ushered into the very holy of holies in the presence of God because of a great high priest. 
And then last week, Ty in chapter 5, look at verses 8 and 9. We learned about an obedient high priest. He told us just a little bit about Adam back in Genesis chapter 3, our first priest representative who was told to guard and to keep the temple garden. Was Adam obedient? He was not. Adam failed miserably in his priestly, kingly duties in the temple garden. But now, but now Jesus, a second Adam has come. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 sometime. Don't turn there now. This is where you'll learn all about this. He was, Jesus was an obedient high priest through every temptation and every form of suffering. Anything that came Jesus' way, he was obedient even until death. Even death on a cross, right? We have a second Adam who has obediently gone through all of the suffering yet without sin. Chapter 5 and verse 5, he's a high priest that was not appointed by men, but he was appointed by God in the order of Melchizedek. And everybody goes, and that's kind of what happens here in this letter too. Because we don't get Melchizedek, I don't think they got Melchizedek real well. So he actually pulls the reins in on his letter or on his sermon, and he says, you know what? I need to talk to you just a minute about this situation we find. I see your eyes glassing over. And I'm going to talk to you just a little bit. And it's not an easy part of the sermon. It's not an easy part of the letter. You need to know what I'm seeing here. Let's read the text and then let's move on with our sermon. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6 and verse 3. Why don't you guys stand as we read the word? Except for John. John, you could sit. Or lay down, whatever you got to do. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain. Since you have become, here's the harsh one, (laughs) you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Thank you, Lord, for your word, right? Have a seat. My sermon from this point forward has three points, and here they are if you want to write them down. First point is this, to finish well, we must be teachable. To finish well, we must be teachable. My second point is going to be this. Being teachable produces a culture of discipleship. 
If we are a group of people that are a teachable kind of people, it's going to produce a culture of discipleship. My third point is this. Discipleship will set you on a trajectory of maturity. Discipleship will set you on a trajectory of maturity. He says in verse 11 here that about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. As I said before, the writer has now pulled the reins in to a hard stop. He hits this idea of Jesus as the best and final high priest and he sees the eyes glazing over. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? You don't understand this meat that I'm feeding you. Though you have been taught these things before, you weren't listening. There's something that has your attention, but you, so, so you weren't listening to, to what I've taught you. Or I taught you and you listened and you got it, but for some reason you have lost it and you don't remember. Because of this, it's really hard for me. It's really hard for me to explain to you the richer facets of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the thing I want to teach you is about the righteousness that is obtained through Jesus Christ, our high priest. This is what I want to teach you about. But I can't go on. I can't just start rambling and and just exegeting about who Melchizedek is because you have not been listening. You have been dull of hearing. Dull of hearing could be translated, you have been lazy listeners. You have become disinterested or distracted. You've you've come to like easier things spoken to you so that you don't have to listen to the more complicated things. We all have experiences like this to one degree or another. As parents, we call it selective hearing. And we all know what that's like. Sometimes it happens to us and we're not even thinking. Have you ever had the experience when you're driving down the road and you get so utterly distracted that you don't even, you don't even remember where the, where the turnoff was? You forgot where you even were because you're so distracted. It's what's happened here. And he's calling them out on it. Not for their destruction. He loves them dearly. And he wants them to move on to finish well. But, but he needs to say, you have become dull of hearing. Where are you at today? As you hear that, do you give kind of a mental internal eye roll? Or do you want to hear? Do you want to hear the Spirit of God say, hey, Jeff, where have you been dull of hearing? Where have, you, where, where's, where have you shown up and yet you check out? You check the box of participation, but you have become dull of hearing. Happens to all of us. The first point is this. To finish well, we have to be teachable. We have got to be teachable people if we're going to finish well. I don't really think that the writer is concerned about the sounds that are coming into our ear holes. He's concerned about the heart. 
He's concerned about the heart that shuts down and doesn't want to process any more information, doesn't want to allow that content to reach the soul and begin to transform and finesse and, and, and meddle with things that are deep inside. The heart is, the, is a place where only God can go and meddle. And if we don't get past the ear hole to listen and process what God is doing and what he means by what he's saying, it never gets to get to the heart. I don't think he's talking about just hearing words and listening up. He's talking about a heart condition. What does a heart condition like this look like or sound like? It sounds like I, I can't. I can't get it. It's just over my head. I can't. I, I'm hearing the words and it's just over my head and I just can't. And you know what? I see that, that you're having those, those adult classes on Sunday mornings, but I just, I just can't. It sounds like I don't want to. I had, a, I had a guy on my block when I was just a little kid and they all wanted to play football and they were all bigger than I was and I'd say I can't because they're all bigger than I was and I didn't want to get my, you know, it was going to hurt. <laughs> and I would say I can't. And he would say can't means I don't want to. I don't want to. It's too much work. It's too humiliating. I sit down and I listen to what's being taught and I can't get past the fact that my guess is I don't know as much as the person next to me. It's humiliating. How about this? You know what? Serving is my thing. <laughs> you know, the learning, we'll leave the learning to the Pastor Jeff-ish kind of people. We'll leave that to them. But serving is my thing. Who was the greatest servant? Really? You're going to use that one. He was the greatest servant of all. How can I not want to learn about him? Part of who he is as a servant is a high priest. His greatest service ever done for all of mankind was on a cross. He did other stuff, I'm sure. Like, turn water into wine. That was awesome. But his greatest service of all was him dying for sin and providing a righteousness for you and for me. I don't have time, right? We all feel that. We're all busy. I don't have time. I don't have time for this. I hear you, I hear that podcast, it's over there, there's that book, I, I don't have time. And I feel that, I do. But there is a way to prioritize your life, to move in the direction. My guess is we prioritize based on the things we long for the most. What I love, what I want, what I want to move towards that's what I'm going to set my priorities in line with, right? Here's the most dangerous one of all. I don't need to. 
Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That is true. That is true for every one of us who sits here today. And there's more to the story. There is a richer, more full understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you. And why is this important? It's important because he says, you've become dull of hearing, and the problem that these people are having from the get-go is they're wandering, they're, wa- they're worshiping angels. They're thinking that Moses is the rock star of the Christian world. They've got serious problems. So he's writing them this letter, and, and he said, here's part of the problem. You've actually become dull of hearing. You're not, you're not listening. So there's a very real problem when we begin realigning our world and saying, I don't, I, I just don't need to. I've arrived. Now, I know, friends, I know that I would never sit across the table from you with a cup of coffee in our hand and you would say, I'm a prideful, older Christian. You would never say that to me. I am a prideful person who doesn't need to press on to growing in my understanding of Jesus. You would never say that. But I'm asking you, would you allow the Spirit of God to search your heart? Where have you stopped because you you are actually saying in your heart, I don't need this anymore. I need to be with my friends. I need to be here in church. I need to check, 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 check but I don't need to press on to understand anything richer than Jesus loves me, this I know. The danger is, why the warning? These are the things that I search my heart about. Why the warning? My forgetter is better than my rememberer. I need to be refreshed. I need to have Ty come here and preach and me sit right there and me take in through these ear holes to affect this heart. I need to be refreshed with the truth of God's word because my forgetter is better than my rememberer. It does wear out. I do forget things. And in the heat of the battle of the week, when I have forgotten I will get taken off by the winds of anything that's going on, by emotions, by other people's needs. I I will get thrown all off track if this heart is not stayed upon the riches of Christ. Our sin tastes good to us. This is another piece of evaluation. Why do I do this? Why do I give my sin tastes good to me? That when I, when I listen to God's word, when I listen to God's word and my sin tastes good to me, I ignore God's word and I, and I delight in sin. I don't want that to be the end of my story. I don't want that to be, be the end of your story. Run to the cross. Run to Christ. Grow in your understanding of who Christ is and all that he has provided for you and may your May your sin taste disgusting to you this week. Me too. Me too. It is gross. Our sin is despicable in the sight of God. And he paid a price for all of it. 
And we get mercy and grace because of all that he's accomplished for us, right? I've already said it, but it's my time management puts me first. When I'm not doing well, my time management puts me first. My comfort becomes most important. I need this. I need to be teachable. I need to have God's word wash over me on a regular basis by reading, by hearing it, by singing it, by listening to other people teach me so that this man can become a godly man, so that this man can learn to trust God more than myself in the difficult days. I need to be teachable. The writer is saying, humble yourself. Go back to listening. Go back to learning. Go back to applying God's word. Let's move on. I think what happens here is when we become teachable, and there's many of us that become teachable, we actually develop a culture of discipleship. There are always going to be people who are a little bit farther down the road than me that I can sit and I can listen to. And you might be surprised. You sit here, you sit where you're at, and I, sit, I stand where I'm at, and you might think, well, Jeff actually is the one who's farther down the road than all of us. Not true. Not true. I could sit with any one of you, and I could find what the Spirit of God has to teach me from you in that conversation. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It develops a culture where we all know that it's good for us to be in a position of humility and be teachable. And it produces a culture of discipleship. I want to be taught. I want to be, I want to be sitting with somebody who can help me understand something. I want to be in a place where it's safe for me to ask a question. Let's look at this text just a little bit. He uses three metaphors to describe this situation. He uses first a schoolroom metaphor. He says you ought to be teachers, but at this point in time, you need to be taught the basics. You ought to be teachers by this time. These are people that have been believers for quite some time. You ought to be teachers by this time, but you actually still need to be taught the basics. That's why I pulled the reins in. I'm holding back. My encouragement to you, friends, you are all able to teach somebody. Someone, somewhere, something that God has taught you. You are all able to teach somebody, something, somewhere. I remember going to Ethiopia for the first time. And I never really understood this until this man uh, was doing the work of preparing us for going door to door, sharing the gospel with people. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I've been on mission trips before, uh, multiple places, different contexts. I think I'm, I think I'm okay. And uh, this, uh, this young lady who was with us, she, uh, she says, I actually, I don't feel right about this. I don't feel prepared. I'm actually really nervous about having a conversation with somebody uh, at their house. And I, I just, I, I don't, I, maybe I'm not going to be able to go. Maybe I'm not going to be able to do this. 
And the guy who was helping us prepare for the trip, he looked at her and he said, do you understand what it is to be saved? And she said yes, and she explained a bit of her testimony. And he said, do you understand that you have more education, not even theological education, you have more education, you have more understanding of the gospel, and then... From your understanding of the gospel, you actually have more theological understanding than 99% of the people that you're going to come in contact with. Don't you know that there's somebody in this church right now, right now in this church, that needs to hear what you have to offer? There's something that God has taught you and developed in your life that you actually could teach somebody else. You, who sit there and think to yourself, I'm so confused, I don't understand what Jeff, Pastor Jeff is saying. That's probably some because I talk so weird. But some of it is because like, you're a young believer. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, who is going to help me? Who is going to teach me? There's a whole bunch of people in this church that can help you. Ask a question. Just come out and, 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 and be teachable and ask a question. You're all able to teach. He uses a parenting metaphor here. He says, he says, but you need to be taught the basics again. You need milk. What's milk for? Milk is for babies. Milk isn't horrendous for adults, but milk is intended to feed babies. If you're a young believer, there's no shame in drinking the milk of the word. The milk of the word represents the basics of the gospel. And there's absolutely nothing wrong and absolutely no shame whatsoever in saying, you know what? There's some things that are more complicated there that you're talking about that I don't get. Could you scale it back a little bit and help me understand some of the more basic things? That's the milk of the word. And there's no shame in it. Nobody walks up to a baby that's sucking on a milk bottle and says, like that would be stupid. Maybe George Costanza would do that. (laughs) Like, but you you just don't. You you don't shame people for needing to learn. That's absolutely phenomenally good truth to be taught to people who are young believers. They need to know the basics of the gospel. It's wonderful, and you never walk away from it. But what he's saying here is that some of you have even forgotten the basics. So I have to teach you the basics again before we can go on to talk more about Melchizedek. If you've been a believer for, say, 10, 15, 20 years, and you still don't know what the idea of justification by faith alone means, come and talk to me. You need the milk of the word again. I hope that doesn't cut in a mean way. I don't mean to be mean, not in any way. But if you've been a believer for a long time, we're going to talk about it as, as we finish. That's one of the basics of being a Christian. And it's okay Listen, if you find yourself in that place and you heard me say that and you're going, your heart just started to race, like started to have an anxiety attack, listen, it's okay. 
We can start right, right from where you're at, but hear the admonition of Scripture. Hear the admonition. Don't be dull of hearing today. Don't be dull of hearing. The third, uh, the third uh, illustration or the, the third metaphor he uses is, is that of an athletic athlete. Um, he says the powers of discernment come through training by constant practice. We've talked about this a little bit already. You can all be skilled in the word of righteousness. You actually can, each one of you. God is not holding out on any of us. You can all become skilled in the word of righteousness. Just recently, I've been taking, uh, working on my master's. That's, that's amazing, right? I've been working at 52. I'm working on my master's. Yeah. And uh, so I just took a midterm exam. It was a three-hour written exam. I got 100% on that exam. And I'm proud of that. I've never gotten an exam. Hey, why not? Sure, thanks. But, but you know how that happened? It's not because I'm called to be a pastor. It's, it's not because of my calling. It's not because I'm a whiz. I'm not, I'm not really that good at school. I don't even like school all that much, to be honest. But I studied really hard. And I memorized my notes. And I learned the content. It was all learnable. Nobody was holding on to me. There was no trick questions. They just said, tell me about this. And I wrote everything that I know how to write. And I got 100%. I'm not different than you. When it comes to the meat of the word, when it comes to the meat of the word, you can learn. I don't mean that to talk down to you. I just, I mean that, I wish I was standing down there. I just mean to talk to you like this, us together. Like, I learned those things. Not because I'm called to be a pastor or I'm up here. I, I, I just a guy who needed to learn that stuff. And that's you too. I hope that's both encouraging and just a little bit convicting. Nobody is holding out on you to chew on the meat of God's word. My third point is this. Discipleship sets you on a trajectory Wow, look at me. I can't even say discipleship anymore. Somebody else want to say it for me? Show off. Discipleship sets you on a trajectory of maturity. It sets you on a trajectory of maturity. The writer here is saying, let's get down to basics. The basics really actually are very good. It's not putting the basics down. It's not saying move on from the basics. It's saying that there's a rich, rich foundation in those basics that are going to help you build upon them with richer truth. It's not different truth. It's not an other than kind of truth. It's something that gets built on top of it. You've heard me use this illustration before. The gospel is like a, like a football-sized diamond with all kinds of facets. 
It's never less than the gospel. It will always be in its, in, in its integrity the gospel. But as light shines on it, and you move it just a little bit differently, and the light hits it from a different angle, you go, oh, wow. And then you move it a little bit different to the left, you go, wow, that's, that's amazing. And then you go a little bit farther, whoa, wow. And you put a little different color on it, and then it, it's phenomenal. But it's never less than the gospel. What, what, the, what the writer is saying here is that you need to learn the basics so that you can build upon it. And as that gospel diamond begins to rotate in your life, you go, ooh, wow, that's amazing. Look at what God did there. Oh, and they're there. Oh, and now that. Oh, wow. And then when we come to Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, I pray that when we talk about it, it's all of chapter 7, so it's coming. You go, man, look at what God did. Wow. That's the point. You got it? That's the point. And he's setting us on a trajectory that, that maturity is where we're headed. We don't want to stay in a position of childishness. Now, there's a difference between being childish and childlike. A childish position is, is, I don't need that. I don't need that. A childlike position is, I need help. I need help. Daddy, up. I need help. That's childlike. We don't want to stay in a childish position in our lives. We want, to, we want to go on this trip with this pastor, this writer, who God has ordained for us to hear. We want to go on this trajectory towards maturity. Who's in? Who's in? I hope you're in. I hope you want to be in. He wants us to know how to apply the truth. He wants us to grow in spiritual wisdom. Not get distracted by the externals, but to, to see the true need of our heart. We need to care deeply about what other people are going through and help them see what's going on in their heart. And how are we going to do that unless we move on to maturity? The writer says, let's get these basics down and set that trajectory right. What are some of the elementary things? Here's the bonus package at the end of the sermon. What are some of the elementary things? He gives a summary right at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. He gives a summary in three couplets. What does that mean? There's three things with two chunks put together. He gives three couplets to describe what is this, what is this basics that you're talking about. And the first one is this in verse 1, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. What, is, what does he think is, is most basic what is, what is the milk of the word that you need to understand? It's justification by faith in Christ alone. You need to know that you have been justified not by your works. You can't do enough good to balance out the bad for God to say, you're amazing, welcome to glory. We can't do it. That's the whole point. We needed somebody a savior to take our sin upon himself. 
A place where we learn this is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Let me read it for you. You guys can look into it when you get home at some point. It says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now listen, it's not like working for something and getting your wages. Here's what it's really like. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. It's about trusting God. It's about believing him. In your believing, you don't get anything for that. It's not even a work. It doesn't work like wages and then you get something for that. It's, that's what the scripture is saying. And the whole picture here is when Abraham took Isaac and he was going to sacrifice his son. And in, in, in him actually following through and doing what God asked him to do, he believed God. He believed that God was going to provide. And he did. God provided a ram in the thicket, remember? And they sacrificed the ram instead of sacrificing the son. And Abraham believed him. So that's the first thing of the basics. That's, that's what we need to know as, as, as we drink the milk of the word. We need to recognize it as, as, as that. That we are justified by faith. By faith in Christ alone. The second thing, the second couplet is instructions about washing and laying on of hands. And what's that about? In the Old Testament, there were all kinds of ceremonial washings and in the temple worship, hands were laid on people during blessing, is on, on animals to be sacrificed, someone to be devoted to service, or on criminals even that were, that, that in, in the case where they required the death penalty. Like there was all kinds of reasons. So it's not a specific thing that he's talking about, but, here, but here's what he's saying. All of those things that were a part of the ceremonies they were all pointing to someone who's greater. They were but a shadow pointing to a savior. That transformation didn't actually happen in the heart of people just because they did all the right things. That they went through all the washings and that they did all the right laying on of hands kinds of things. Transformation happens by the same way somebody's saved. We are saved by faith. And we're changed by trusting God as well. He said our second thing that we need to know about in milk of the word, the milk of the word, is that we're transformed by trusting Christ. We're not transformed by doing things and getting it right. And then God's nice to us and changes our life. That's not how it works. And the third couplet now, if the first one was about salvation and the second one is kind of about how we're, by how we're supposed to live our life, what do you think the third couplet is about? It's about the future. It's about glorification. He's saying there's something more that's going to take place. You need to know as part of the basics that there's something more going on here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
verses 19 to 23 says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that was the first Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. This is one of the basics of the Christian life, is that this isn't all there is. That glory, glorification has been secured for us. That we get to go and be with him in glory because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. Justification by faith. Transformation, not by our performance, but by the work of the Spirit of God and trust in Christ. And glorification. We will be with him one day. We will be with him one day. Amen? Amen. If these things are new to you, ask a question of a friend. Ask a question of a friend. If these are, these are things that you've known your whole life and it's just a refresher, play, praise God. I bless the Lord. I bless the Lord that you're reminded. And if you don't understand it at all, come and talk to me. Give me a call. Send me an email. I would love to sit down and have a conversation with you about the milk of the word because we want to move on, right? Chapter seven is coming. Chapter six isn't that much easier, but chapter seven's coming. And we want to be able to build on those things as we move forward.